0: How would you describe Chinese fintech to a non-Chinese audience? Chinese fintech is just amazing. That is Martin Chorzempa. Martin is my colleague here at the Peterson Institute. He's a scholar. He reads and writes and speaks Chinese, and he spent part of his life living in China. Martin has an amazing new book about Chinese fintech called The Cashless Revolution.
1: So if you think about fintech, you really are thinking about the new generation of technology like mobile phones and digital payments, you know, blockchain, these kinds of things which can potentially change the way that finance is done and create new opportunities for finance. Fintech in China is really about this new model of what they call super apps where you essentially take all of the things that you do with your bank, with Venmo, and all sorts of things that you don't even think are finance, like, you know, getting an Uber, booking travel, that kind of thing, and putting it all into one single application that has a payment system built in that stores your data. They know who owns what, who is paid whom, and then can use that data to help figure out, you know, giving you credit or selling you good investment products. Just about your entire life can be encapsulated in this one application, and that's what makes it so powerful.
0: You are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade and policy. I'm your host, Chad Bowne, the Reginald Jones Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. On this week's show, we're going to speak with Martin Chorzempa we'll explore the incredible rise of a brand new sector of economic activity in China, fintech. This episode is about Chinese policies, the people and firms behind the technology, as well as the implications of fintech for the Chinese people today. It's also a little about trade. Hi, Martin. Hi, Chad. Thanks for having me. Let's start in 2001. This is the year that China enters into the World Trade Organization. Back then, what was the most advanced form of financial payments globally? Well, the
1: most advanced would be credit cards. So you have a credit card issued by your bank that works on this network run by Visa, MasterCard, or American Express, underpinned by all these banks. And what that allows you to do is easily make payments anywhere that accepts these cards, which is just about everywhere. All across the country and also around the world and as a consumer you barely even need to think about it it just works really well in addition you're getting about 30 days of free credit maybe you're getting rewards points and all that it's a system that often works really really well for consumers it is however
0: a little bit expensive how about China and again we're in 2001 what was China doing on payments at this time And what was it supposed to do with respect to its legal commitments for these types of financial payment services when it came into the World Trade Organization?
1: China at this time is basically running on cash. Maybe a few people have a debit card, but it's not very useful yet. Nobody has a credit card. If you want to issue credit cards, you need somebody to be evaluated for how creditworthy they are to figure out how much credit you want to extend. And in China, they didn't really have a system for that. This was really an urgent need in China at this time, because with the entry to the WTO, they were supposed to open up their domestic payment system and generally their financial system fully by around 2005. But it didn't do it. And the foot dragging led the the U.S. companies that were hoping to make a killing in the Chinese market to get so mad that they pushed the U.S. government to finally launch a WTO case against China, which it lost, and then still refused to comply.
0: Why didn't China open up or comply with that WTO dispute settlement ruling? China was very nervous about what
1: would happen if it opened up to these powerful, much more experienced global Western payments companies and banks. They were worried that they were going to essentially eat the lunch of the domestic companies, many of which were state-owned. And its own counterpart, you could say, to Visa or MasterCard, which is China UnionPay, a state-backed monopoly that plays a similar role linking together bank cards in China, was only really established in 2002. So it had a lot of growing to do in order to think that it could compete with the
0: Western companies. China UnionPay sounds like the classic infant industry protection kind of story. The Chinese government is is trying to create its own national champion. it's it's worried about competition from the Western companies that had a head start in this industry. Why didn't this particular approach work out? There
1: are three main reasons. The first is that nobody was really willing to pay fees, on the merchant side or the consumer side to pay in in cards because they weren't credit cards. The second is that union pay was really this state monopolist without any competitive pressure that was run by a bunch of former government bureaucrats. So this is not really conducive to an innovative system that's going to be focused on serving consumers and businesses, and the third is that there was this whole new interesting payment system developing for the internet that was largely separate and ignored by this big
0: monopolist that was about to disrupt it. This whole new interesting payment system developing for the internet that was a massive source of unexpected domestic competition for China union pay, this would become Chinese fintech. in your new book you describe the creation and evolution of a number of these incredible chinese fintech companies that are working through the internet somehow to be involved in the in the financial sector but another amazing part of your story really involves a number of individuals one in particular really stands out who is jack ma jack ma is this fascinating
1: guy who starts off as an English teacher and can't even get a job at Kentucky Fried Chicken, can't manage to pass the the exam that's required for people to go to universities without multiple tries. You look at him as a young person, you don't necessarily see the ingredients of someone who's gonna be one of the richest, most innovative people on earth. But he then discovers the internet somehow through a bunch of crazy situations and is convinced that the internet is going to help China connect to the rest of the world. So he starts a company that's trying to link together, say you are a business in Iowa, and you want to order 30,000 t-shirts with your customer logo on them, you're able to order that from Alibaba.com. He called it Alibaba because he thinks this is a thousand and one nights, Everyone around the world knows what this name is. So this is someone who's really engaged with technology. He's very colorful. At one point, he makes up quotes from Bill Gates about how important the internet is to try and convince people in China that the internet actually exists, that he's connecting them with a real thing. And he's really one of the most important drivers
0: of the adoption of new technology in finance. In running Alibaba.com, what's the key problem Jack Ma Needed to solve?
1: Well, the first one that brings us to fintech is the looming entry of foreign competition from eBay and PayPal. They are entering the consumer e commerce market, and Jack Ma fears that if they're able to conquer that market, they're going to conquer the whole thing. So he creates, as a result of this fear, Taobao, which is now the largest e commerce marketplace in the world. But at the time, it's this tiny thing and he discovers that people transacting online, because they can't pay with a credit card just typing their information in, and they don't trust the people that they're transacting with online, the only transactions people are willing to do are in person, like Craigslist. We chat, we meet up in person, I make sure the goods are legit, you make sure my bills aren't counterfeit, we pay in cash, and we separate. But then there's not really much potential for this to be a new national or international way to transact. So Jack Ma creates this system called Alipay. So Alipay really begins as an escrow system where I, as the person buying something, pay the money to Alipay so the business knows that I've paid up before they ship me the goods. And I know that Alipay isn't going to give that money to the merchant until I receive the goods and make sure that they're legit. So as long as both the merchant and the consumer trust Alipay, this system can work even if we don't trust each other but then of course in in to actually make that work they have to move money around between accounts and so they partner with the bank and this ends up growing into a fully separate payment system for the internet why wasn't Union pay the answer here this is really the early 2000s and Union pay just started in 2002 so they have to digitize the entire, you know, offline, huge economy of hotels, restaurants, everything else, that's what they're focused on. And when Jack Ma comes to them and says, I want to work with you. Can you help us build a payment system for the internet? They send some low level executive to tell him off and say, you little pipsqueak we don't care about the internet economy you know remember these are government bureaucrats they're not people who are really you know trying to get their pulse on innovation they're trying to build the basics of a system and this is really just not a priority for them so jack ma has to
0: do it on his own to outsiders chinese economic policy has this reputation for being pretty heavy handed China has this long history of state planning with five-year plans, industrial policy, subsidies, and lots of inefficient state-owned enterprises. How does Chinese financial regulation fit into this story?
1: So this is one of the most fascinating paradoxes in the way that China does things, because alongside the state-dominated subsidies and five-year plans, there's also this side of it which is extremely friendly to innovation. The way this worked in fintech was that they made a specific decision not to impose regulation in 2005. And just to let this thing go and watch how it worked without any clear rules. It's really extraordinary. It's like a libertarian paradise in an authoritarian system of government. And a lot of this was due to the governor of the central bank, Governor Zhou Xiaochuan. This is someone who is absolutely convinced that really new technology and competition is what's going to make China's financial system much better. You can't just order the banks to become innovative. You need to actually force them to become innovative by introducing new competition. And he recognizes that the system that China has at this point, which is very repressive, it's designed to give consumers limited choice, to funnel their money at low interest rates into government priorities, is not what's going to support China's growth going on into the future. So he's this really important protector that allows people like Jack Ma to do this innovation without going to jail.
0: Now, this lack of regulation did result in this incredible innovation and creation of Chinese national champions in fintech like Alibaba. Were there any downsides along the way?
1: Absolutely. When you open up this kind of space in a usually very regulated industry, all sorts of people will come in and pretend that they're doing innovative fintech things. But really what they're doing is Ponzi schemes and old-fashioned loan sharking. So I'll give you one example. Ding Ning, someone I actually met for tea at one point and thought was one of the most honest people I had met in the entire industry because he was forthcoming about the problems in it and turned out to be China's version of Sam Bankman-Fried, the crypto guy. But add in pink diamonds, Singaporean villas, and weapons stashes and smuggling gold across the border into Myanmar to ethnic militias where you can launder the money. It's like almost an unbelievable story. This guy gathers $7.6 billion from nearly a million people in China by promising them these wildly high interest rates and saying, we have all this AI and big data that makes your money safe. And really what he was doing is just making up projects and smuggling the money out of the country. But it was on the internet. And really nobody knew who was responsible for checking if any of these claims were real. So it slipped through the cracks in China's system. And they really couldn't figure out what to do about this highly fraudulent space until it was well over a hundred billion dollar problem affecting at least tens of millions of people in China who were about to lose their savings.
0: What happened to Ding Ning? Ding Ning is in jail. Tell us about the role of the foreign, non-Chinese financiers during this era.
1: Well, these internet companies were copying in many ways the business models that we're familiar with with Silicon Valley, where initially they don't charge any money for their products so they can build up and become a large companies. That means that they need a huge amount of money up front to be able to take these losses and not go bankrupt. The money for this doesn't come from the Chinese state. It doesn't come from subsidies. It comes from foreign investors, which are the ones who are able to recognize the potential of these companies. Examples are Goldman Sachs, Yahoo, and SoftBank in Japan. And it's this money from these foreigners which enables Alibaba to beat eBay in the Chinese market. Jack Ma called it cutting a hole in their pocket, even though they have deep pockets. So, you have these foreigners funding a Chinese domestic company to outcompete other foreigners. And they make a killing off of this because these companies became extremely successful. But at the same time, some of them discovered that doing business in China it can be very dangerous. So, at one point around 2011, Jack Ma transfers the stake in the fintech business, Alipay, to himself, essentially, without telling the board of yahoo or softbank who are supposed to own big shares in this company and in the end they come to an agreement to only get a small share of it and jack ma tells them it's because the chinese government's not going to give us a license for payments if it's foreign owned the funny thing is that tencent the other company that competes with alibaba also has foreign ownership but is able to get the get the license that he wants so It's really not clear, and I don't think we're ever really going to know. Was this actually a demand from the Chinese government to make sure this online payments company was a domestic one? Or was this simply a power grab from Jack Ma, who didn't want to share the profits from the fintech boom with
0: American investors like Yahoo? How did product offerings for these fintech firms evolve over time? When they start out, it's extremely
1: low-tech. It's literally faxing copies of your bank transfers and a notebook where somebody writes down the suspicious transactions. But then it builds into a payment system for the internet, for e-commerce things. And then around 2013, 2014, they start to go offline. And this is when they begin to compete with the traditional financial system. This is the rise of QR codes. And that starts with taxis. And there's this battle between the two main companies in this space over who's going to get the QR code, their QR code, printed in the taxi. And they provide massive subsidies to people who scan a QR code to pay instead of using cash, which then creates this flywheel where enough consumers have adopted it that merchants decide that they want to accept it. And within a year or so, everywhere is taking QR code payments and cash has pretty much disappeared. And they realize once they have payment system, they can add all sorts of other financial services too. And this is where the government allowing them to do so becomes so crucial. They get licenses to sell money market funds and other investments. They get licenses to give loans. And they add all of these things into this bundle of services that becomes ultimately the super apps. If you have the Alipay app, it's essentially like a whole new operating system for your phone where you don't really care about iOS or Apple anymore. You just care about opening up that Alipay app and, you know, your Uber on the way to work. You call it through that app. Checking your stocks is through that app. When you order your coffee, when you arrive at your office, that's going to be done through the app. Booking your travel through that app. Updating your insurance policy in there. Getting a loan to buy, you know, a refrigerator. You're going to do that through that app. Just about your entire life can be encapsulated in this one application. And
0: that's what makes it so powerful. By 2017, hundreds of millions of Chinese citizens have this new access to finance. Only a short time earlier, they had been transacting in cash. In your book, you describe how China now has these incredibly dominant, valuable Chinese payment systems like WeChat Pay and Alipay, these super apps that have a billion users in China that do everything. Let's talk about trade. It seems like this would be pretty competitive globally. How did these Chinese firms attempt to expand internationally?
1: There are really three models that they've followed. The first and the most successful is that because it's such a no-brainer for merchants around the world to accept Chinese payment tools so that Chinese tourists can pay for things, think about a Louis Vuitton store on the Champs-Élysées, for example, that someone in the payments industry has likened it to not offering air conditioning in a car. They're now accepted in dozens of countries around the world at thousands, if not millions, of, of merchants. And that's a really successful globalization story The other side of it is investing in fintech companies around the world that can be partners for the Chinese fintech companies. And there, they've been decently successful, but many of the companies they've invested in trying the Chinese model abroad haven't really worked out as well as it worked in China. And those partnerships are often very controversial from a national security perspective, which limits their ability to merge these companies they invest in in a global network. The third approach of internationalization has been to try and get users abroad for Chinese fintech apps. They had such a powerful system in China that they assumed that that model would work in other countries. And the best example of this is WeChat's attempt to expand in India. And they started really through social media, you know, having people chat with each other through WeChat. But what they discovered is that the environment there is different. They don't have phones with as large of memory. It's more expensive to get access to data. And there are some issues if you, for example, shake your phone, it's supposed to open you to connect to other people around you. In India, that led to women getting tons of harassing messages from from men around them. And then in addition to that, the Indian government said that they were maybe going to ban this app because it was Chinese, and that was a surprise to the users. They said, "Is this is Chinese? We don't think we can trust a Chinese app with all of our sensitive personal information. So in India, WeChat fails. And instead, WhatsApp, now owned by Facebook, completely dominates the the chat market. These companies that failed to really adapt themselves to different situations in other international markets and struggle with this geopolitical baggage from China made it very difficult for them to expand abroad, at least to get people abroad to use their products.
0: What happened in 2019 and what happened to Jack Ma? Well, David essentially has become
1: Goliath. We go from these small, scrappy, very popular tech companies which are empowering small businesses and giving people new access to loans to become these gigantic conglomerates of finance and technology that look like they're unassailable. No one else could compete with them. We go from no one has access to credit to people are having credit shoved down their throats. You have too many offers for credit, people are falling into debt, and then you get a lot of sob stories about these people whose lives have been ruined from clicking I'll take that loan one too many times on their phone. At the same time, you have this global recognition of the downsides of these huge technology companies for competition, for privacy, for everything else. So the popularity and sense that you're helping the underdog no longer really exists for Chinese fintech. It's now this huge thing. That if it goes bust could bring down china's entire economy digital and elsewhere but jack ma hasn't really adapted to the new reality he still thinks he has this aura of invincibility around him and he gives the speech castigating the government for trying daring to regulate his massive empire in a way that's probably what you would want for something that's that large And that leads the government to think this guy is not just a threat to financial stability in the country, he threatens our political system. He's not willing to accept the government's decision about how to weigh the risks of innovation versus regulation. And that leads to the massive tech crackdown that you've probably seen in the headlines for the past few years. So there are all these rumors then that Jack Ma has been put in jail or somewhere else Some journalists tracked down his private jet and discovered that he was jetting around in China. Now it appears he's living in Tokyo, trying to safely escape the government net. But you really never know if someone like that traveling with their friends, if some of those friends might be uh, inserted there by the Chinese state to keep tabs on him and make sure he's not going to say anything
0: controversial anymore. As my last question, I want to ask about one other thing that you also cover extensively in your book, and that's privacy, surveillance, and maybe some of the downsides to efficiency of fintech, the data accumulation, and these Chinese super apps like WeChat and Alipay. How were these trade-offs, both the promise and the peril, made clear when the COVID pandemic hit? When
1: COVID hit China, the whole country went into a strict lockdown and one of the key questions facing the government was how can we let some people out so that our economy doesn't collapse and how can we thus choose who are the people who are safe who haven't been around anyone infected but they didn't know how to do it so they instead turned to alipay they turned to the fintech company to design an algorithm that would give people a health code and if you got the green code You could go around and do your grocery shopping go back to your relatively normal life if you had a red code they might weld your door shut and block off the fire escapes this really shows how this power that this company gained through the ubiquity and through their technical expertise was at this point a force for liberation for people who were in lockdown But then as the government maintained this system of controls on people, it later became a way for the government to keep tabs on everybody. Anywhere you went in China, until very recently, you had to scan your health code, which not only showed people that you hadn't been exposed, but also sent your information and location directly to the police so they could track you everywhere you went maybe for a lot more than just contact tracing. So you see how this technology, which is so powerful and can bring people new freedoms, financial and otherwise, also in the hands of an authoritarian government, can very quickly become a tool of control and surveillance. When all your data is in one place and the government asks to take a look, it's really hard for that company to say no. Martin, thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
0: That is all for Trade Talks. A huge thanks to Martin Chorzempa, my colleague here at the Peterson Institute. Do check out his amazing new book, The Cashless Revolution, China's Reinvention of Money and the End of America's Domination of Finance and Technology. Thanks to Melina kalb our supervising producer. As always, thanks to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter or even Mastodon. We are now on Mastodon. Mastodon? Mastodon. Mastodon as well. We're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores at trade underscore underscore talks. Because being on two Twitter-like social media thingies is better than one.